The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the week ahead in the markets and this very busy month for the Fed. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Thomas Kennedy, Chief Investment Strategist of Global Wealth Management at J.P. Morgan. We have a lot to discuss today. Welcome, Tom and Ben, and thank you for joining me on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Tom, you spent 10 years working at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. What did you do there, and how does your experience there inform your current views on the Fed's roadmap as it strives to probe inflation? Thanks so much, Lauren. I, I had a, the luxury of working for the Fed in the markets group at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Various roles, but the most interesting one, I think, was really trying to help policymakers understand what's in the price for markets and, and really what the market expected them to do. Uh, why why might the Fed want to know that is it helps them calibrate their policy. So in this environment, what's the level of inflation that the Fed is really fighting and how high do they need to take interest rates to beat that level of inflation? Um, it really helps me in my job at JP Morgan now is I have a unbiased or at least I think biased framework for assessing where there's value for investors. Uh, and it's the same framework that the Fed taught me. Tell us about it. The framework is meant to really assess what can happen in environments and what might be necessary to combat inflation or to help the Fed reach their mandates. Let's take an example. The bond market today, if you buy a 10-year treasury bond at around 4%, you're getting compensated for the Fed to hike rates to about 5.5% and to keep the Fed funds rate there for, or excuse me, keep the Fed funds rate at three and a half percent for the 10 years after that. Um, now, you have to believe that interest rates will stay higher for longer than what's in the price to not want to buy a bond today. But the going interest rate in the market that's generally accepted to say, keep inflation around 2% is something closer to 2 maybe even 3%. So for a long-term investor, you're getting, I think you have really attractive time to buy bonds. And if I'm the Fed, Lauren, I'm really saying maybe I've done enough to beat inflation because these rates are, by this framework, very restrictive. So you, dis you discussed with me a five-step process that you look at when you consider what the Fed is trying to do and where it's going. So do you want to walk us through that? I thought it was kind of intriguing. Yeah, I think if, you, if you're the Fed's perspective, you're, you're trying to get inflation to go down towards 2%. Now, the path to getting there, number one, takes a long time, and I think it works through these five steps. First and foremost, step one is financial conditions tighten. 
this was done last year. And I think we generally more and think about it in the interest rate sense. We move interest rates higher and regular Americans are incentivized to save rather than borrow. Um, but Americans respond to other things as well. Like if their 401k or equity valuations go down, they're also less incentivized to borrow and spend. So 2022 was the biggest tightening in those aggregate financial conditions without a recession dating back to the early 80s. We really only have great data back to the early 80s. That's why I say that time. So relatively historic event. So step one is done. Step two is interest rate sensitive sectors deteriorate first. The, the most obvious interest rate sensitive sector of America is housing. And why might that be the most sensitive? Well, like let's say I walk into one of our branches at JP Morgan and want to borrow money to buy a house. JP Morgan will lock that interest rate for 90 days. Tom, go out, find a house. You got 90 days. And if you don't buy a house, come back. We'll reset that rate. Well, last year in 2022, a 30-year fixed rate mortgage went from 3% all the way up to 7%. Holy moly, that's like, that's a nearly 70% increase in the cost of financing a home. Um, I don't know about you, Lauren. I don't know a lot of folks that have 70% uh, extra capital sitting around. Not too many. Uh, and as a result, these sectors, <laughs> yeah, these sectors, this sector deteriorates quickly. Home starts in America, Lauren, down 30% from the post-COVID peak, and existing home sales down 40%. So this what, is a housing recession. So what then happens in step three? Yeah, step three is the the interest rate impact moves to, to businesses. Um, JP Morgan, as an example, does a billions of dollars a year of capital investment. But the cost of financing is very high, so... Like many businesses, J.P. Morgan is slowing capital investment, but CapEx from, from J.P. Morgan is another business's revenue. So as that environment slows, corporate revenues start to slow as well. And that's the step we're in right now, Lauren. Q4 earnings for 2022 are down in the S&P 500 about 5%. And we haven't seen that since, since COVID, the depths of COVID. Um, you know, What's a business to do if their earnings are slowing? That's step four. They have to defend their margins, and that could be cutting CapEx more, but more likely than not, it'll be layoffs. And mm -hmm. the question becomes, what sectors should you look to? Um, I'm looking at construction, manufacturing, and most likely finance jobs as being part of step four and the layoff cycle there. Um, and then along this recession roadmap, the thing that happens next, which is step five, is inflation actually slows towards mandate. How long is this going to take to play out, do you think? Yes, your question is an, an important one and racks my team's brains regularly. Like step one, like I said, Lauren, is a, this is a historic tightening in conditions that we saw in 2022. Mm -hmm. But this process takes some time. So, you know, we're of two minds. Is it the severity of tightening conditions or just time? Probably somewhere in between, but we're expecting step four to be reached in probably Q3 of this year, maybe Q4. Mm -hmm. So Powell is going to testify before Congress this week, which he's required to do twice a year. What do you think he'll say and what do you want him to say? I don't think he's going to stray too far from what he has said uh, at recent FOMC meetings that 
Fed is going to meet next week, they're going to have plenty of time to reorient uh, policy. I do think he'll talk about this timeline and that things take time. And I think he'll talk about rates being restrictive. They, we're actually getting evidence now that rates are restrictive. Um, like I talked about housing being a recession, but importantly, new residential home projects, those that are being completed, Lauren, are actually higher now than new home starts. And imagine if you're a business owner that does building in, in homes, if you finish 10 projects and you're only going to start eight, you have a team of workers that don't have a place to, to go to. So rates are restrictive there. I think he'll also talk about lending standards tightening dramatically. And we're actually starting to see auto and credit card delinquencies mm -hmm. rise. These are, uh, albeit from low levels, I agree, but I think he's getting evidence that rates are restrictive. So I think he'll continue to push on, we're going to keep rates restrictive for a long period of time. And that's a way to make sure in the event we get a recession, it won't be too punitive. So at Barron's, we've been struck by the market's resilience in the face of a strong economy, uh, certainly not in the housing sector, but elsewhere, especially given the likelihood that the Fed is going to have to hike rates beyond what many people had been expecting. And as you say, keep them high for a long period of time. So I'm going to ask Ben and Tom, why has the market been fighting the Fed and how do you think this tension will be resolved? Ben, we haven't heard from you yet. You can go first. I have to go first. I mean, yeah. I mean part of this, I think, is just a, a reaction to what happened last year where we did have a, uh, a big sell-off, but the, the sell-off was particularly large in, um, you know, in the tech, in tech stocks and things that uh, were really exposed to rising rates. Um, and I, I think by the end of the year, positioning was, uh, it, it was investors were positioned in such a way that, um, you know, that without signs that uh, I guess the world was ending, there was really hard to keep pushing a lot of those stocks down and keep buying things like staples. So what we've seen is just a big rotation so far um, out of things like consumer staples and utilities, which have had a pretty lousy start to the year and into things that do have more exposure to risk. Uh, a lot of the worst performers of uh, 2022 have been the best performers. A lot of these companies do uh, have some hair on them. Um, and, and that's just the kind of things that investors have, have wanted. Um, I think they just, uh, the, the risk aversion of 2022 has shifted into uh, something something else where I don't think investors are worried quite so much about another leg down, uh, you know, another 20% leg down or something like that. What about you, Tom? What's your take on the market? I'm glad, ben, I'm glad ben had to go first, but now I'm happy to <laughs> head on to it. Um, I think the market's resilience is, is related to the consumer resilience. Um, consumers have been propped up by excess savings. I think the media has done tons of really good work shining a light on this. And excess savings is during COVID, consumers were able to save money because the, their ability to go out and spend it was, was depleted. But sure enough, that excess savings is dwindling very quickly. So this is you know the first part of the resiliency. If consumers continue to run down their savings as they have been at the same trend, the bottom 60% of households in America by income look poised to run out of that excess savings in the coming month or two. So this piece of resiliency will fade. But I think it rotates into the resiliency of just the labor market and wage growth in America running north of 5% is going to keep nominal income growth pretty high. And it's, that's, I think, the piece that the Fed needs to break. And they need to hike rates enough so that 
businesses aren't incentivized to keep hiring and they can break the spiral of um, nominal income growth, keeping it inflation higher. So Ben, back to your point, like earnings have been for businesses have remained high because even in spite of inflation being high, consumers have kept spending. And that's the, the piece that needs to break. And really, the Fed now has a wage mandate. They need to break too high wages to get inflation back down to 2%. Uh, and again, I think that'll, that'll require layoffs. But that's, I think, when you start to see the market resilience, Ben, as you talked about, start to break. How, how much uh, do you think the, the fact that interest rates are higher now that people are getting more uh, off of their savings or even um, I was reading about the uh, cost of living increases in the um, in Social Security, you know, that haven't gone up so much. Has that helped uh, with the consumer resilience as well? Yeah, I think it has. Um, the cost of living adjustments were big. They're impactful in January. That matters. I think you also have. Um, you know, the global backdrop improving too. China reopening, uh, Europe skirting a, an energy-driven recession on the back of warm weather and and the ability to ration energy way more effectively than I think most were expecting. I think both of those pieces are there. Um, and to some degree, that's why the market is pricing that the Fed can get to 5.5% on the Fed funds rate, whereas just 45 days ago, the market expectation was that they'd only get to 5%. So this, you know, that recession roadmap we talked about presses on and it becomes what's the level that rates need to go to to get the desired outcomes. Um, you know, and unfortunately, that's margin defense. That That's a desired outcome at this point for businesses. So in light of this whole discussion, where are you telling your clients to put their money? This is where my Fed background, Lauren, is becomes or the that framework that you know, I, I fine tuned by working with the FOMC and deciding what's in the price is most important. You can look at simplistically, if I think I can earn in the next 12 months, maybe 6%, if I just own the S&P 500 outright, but I could own, I could get 5% risk-free in say a T-bill or a municipal bond. This is the closest in the last 15 years, those two expected returns have really been um, but one of them has risk and the other one doesn't. So I think, you know, this what's in the price framework helps you say, well, bonds are really attractive on an absolute or even a risk adjusted basis. And, you know, the case for a core bond, which is an investment grade bond or a, a muni bond is something as simple as yields are near historic equity like returns. The S&P 500 has, has uh, offered investors since the year 2000 about 7% total return. We can get 5% in a T-bill or maybe 5.5% in investment-grade bond. You're pretty close. And then two is you get protection. In a recession, it's most likely rates will decline. You know, I'm just stating the obvious or, or the counter to. If you think rates are restricted, they should come down when, when, uh, when growth comes down. And then lastly, you get some capital appreciation potential. 90% of our JP Morgan investment grade index trades below par. So if you hold this bond to maturity, it will pay you back at par. So yield plus price appreciation. So I think the case for core bonds, which, you know, last 10 years, Lauren, very boring, not so sexy. I think they look pretty exciting at this point. It's, a, it's an amazing convergence of yield after so many years. 
and of total return potential. I mean, where do, where do you see value in the stock market, if at all, at this point? Yeah, I think in the stock market, there's certainly going to be value. I think you want to reorient yourself to, number one, where are prices, quote unquote, cheap? So where are the multiples investors are willing to pay low relative to history? That's one. Where can I expect earnings resilience in the event we hit a recession? And then three, what, where am I going to get leverage to the economy that can do well, even if rates stay relatively high or high relative to the last 10 years? There's two places that fit both of those, those um, or there's two places that fit those three points and small and mid cap in America, that cheap valuations, low, low double digit expected earnings, and a lot of leverage to the real economy industrials, um, infrastructure names, you know, things that need to to happen regardless of where interest rates are. So U.S. small and mid-cap, and then believe it or not, in Europe. Um, I know that this trade has been, has really not worked for 10 years, but I challenge a lot of my investors and a lot of my clients to say, is it possible it's going to work in the next 10 years? And, um, you know, again, fits those the three-pronged um, offering uh, that we, that I talked about. Small mid cap in Europe. Interesting. So now I want to spend a little time talking about this week's earnings. Ben Lordstown Motors, the EV company reported this morning. We'll start the conversation there. The numbers were not pretty. So tell us what is happening at Lordstown and why can't anyone seem to compete with Tesla? It's it's a very interesting, uh, it's been a very interesting reporting season for, for the electric vehicles. Lordstown is uh, you know, it, it is a troubled uh, uh, EV maker. Its shares are trading for just a bit over a dollar, um, and and the earnings weren't great. Uh, it reported a loss of forty-five cents. That was worse than expectations for thirty-two cents a share, but it's also worse than earnings uh, a year ago when they lost forty-two cents. Um, this is kind of the kicker, though. They had sales of just one hundred and ninety-three thousand um, dollars. That missed the consensus for seven million. Um, they sold three vehicles. Um, when yeah, it, I was going to say that doesn't sound like they sold a lot of cars. No, they did not sell a lot of cars, which is better than they did before when they they sold no cars. But <laughs> when they when they went public as a as a spec, you know, they had predicted that they'd be able to sell. Um, I think their uh, they had built in thirty one thousand six hundred numbers was their for. Uh, 600 cars was their forecast, um, and it sold just three. Um, and, and I think this really shows the, the problems that uh, EV uh, makers have now. I mean, Tesla went through all this a long, long time ago at this point, and now it's a very profitable company. Um, but you have these, it, and it you know got going during a period where money was essentially free. But now you have these other EV makers, these startups that are having to try to get profitable at a time when money isn't free. Um, and it makes it very hard to compete. And you really have to have a, a, a strong backer, I think, in some ways to, uh, to help you get through this. For Lordstown, um, they, uh, they they do have uh, perhaps a helper in Foxconn. We have others like Lucid um, has an investor in Saudi Arabia. Rivian has a lot of cash on hand. Um, Amazon has invested there. Um, and, and so all that help, I think, will be needed because this is a really tough time to be an EV company trying to, to get uh, off the ground. Um, what's also interesting, though, is that uh, the tough spot that the legacy automakers are in as well, because, you know, they're trying to also get these um, build up their production um, and make these profitable. 
um, and, and they have the, the infrastructure for it, they have the money for it, but they're still competing with Tesla, which has much larger, much higher margins. Um, and so Tesla's able to do things like cut prices when it feels like it. It, it did it again today. Um, I think it cut 10% uh, off of the Model S um, and another model as well. Um, and uh, it's been cutting prices, um, you cut prices earlier this year to get under the uh, IRS cap so that uh, it, it's uh, so car buyers could get the um, EV discount there. And so it just has seems to have uh, a big lead. It's making a bunch of uh, cars already. It makes more EVs than anyone else in the United States. Um, and it is uh, also able to then um, go ahead and have flexibility on pricing to go ahead and make sure that it can sell those cars. And it's competing not just against EV makers, but luxury automakers as well. So it's just a very tough time for car makers generally, I believe. That's a very good analysis of the industry. So let's now switch to what I suppose is the opposite of an EV stock. That would be Campbell's Soup. It's a steady eddy. It's got a dividend yield of almost 3%. The company reports on Wednesday. What's the outlook there? The outlook's pretty good. Um, it's supposed to report a profit of 74 cents. That would be uh, up from 69 cents. Uh, sales are going up as well. Um, RBC expects uh, another qu solid quarter um, with the uh, top line driven by both the ability to raise prices, but also that uh, supply chains have, uh, supply chain problems have started to go away quite a bit. Um, snacks are also very strong. We've seen earnings from uh, the likes of Mondelez and from Pepsi um, with RBC now expecting uh, something along the lines of 18.4% uh, growth in snacks um, year over year, uh, which is quite good. Um, the, the big problem here is you, uh, you know, you can almost see by the, the returns, the stock has gained 15% over the last year. That's great. That's real outperformance. It's down 7.7% so far this year. And I think the question has to be, does anyone want to own Staples right now? Um, if the, uh, the, you know, if, if the market is convinced that we're not going to get uh, a big recession and that the stock market has bottomed or that it bottomed in October, then staples are not the place you want to be. And so these are stocks have been selling off and it's possible that even good numbers might not be good enough to lift Campbell's stock. I think at some point though, these staples will become attractive again and not just Campbell, but other ones as well. So here's one stock that people do want to own, and that is Ulta Beauty. It's a popular retailer of makeup and personal care products. I think the stock is up about 42% over the past year. What is so beautiful about Ulta, which is reporting on Thursday? Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's a stock that had a great 2022, but is also off to a good start this year. It's up 11% in 2023. And part of it is that, uh, you know, it, it was a, a company that it did pretty well during the lockdowns because people were going on their Zoom videos and still had to do their makeup. But the um, the company is also um, benefiting from the reopening because people are going out and they want to look good and, you know, they use up their makeup, they have to buy more and Ulta is, is doing great. Um, JP Morgan is actually expecting, uh, their analyst is expecting same-store sales to rise 13%, um, and that uh, earnings could come in at around, uh, you know, I think 660 is uh, what they have, which would be a lot higher than the consensus. Um, the one downside might be in margins, um, because there probably are some promotional headwinds, and there's some investments going on this year. But Ulta has been a strong stock, and as long as these sales continue, and there are signs that people will continue to buy um, makeup, um, the stock's going to do just fine. This is actually a Barron's pick. Um, our timing wasn't 
great on it. Um, but the stock is, uh, I think, down 0.4% since we picked it at the beginning of February, but it's outperformed the market during that period. And we'll see how the stock does uh, at its earnings report on Thursday. And we don't grade ourselves in just a month. No, it is a uh, at least a year-long call. Right, right. Fascinating situation. So before we go to listener questions, we've got some great ones coming in. I want to talk about GE Investor Day. That is happening on Thursday. General Electric has finally spun out its healthcare unit. Now the focus is shifting to its power segment. Also, a Wall Street analyst who happens to work at J.P. Morgan and who was remarkably right on GE's troubles is moving on. So, Ben, let's take a closer look at GE and at Stephen Tusa's record on GE and why it matters. Um, sure. So GE is no longer the company we all thought of as this sprawling um, industrial um, company. The pieces have been um, started to get spun out. Um, they're removing um, what what didn't work, and they're they're making the company into a more co they're making it into a more coherent company. So we did just have the GE Healthcare spinoff. Um, and that's uh, that was the, the really the, the the first step in the last step for GE, if if you will. Um, the business first had to get stabilized, and then uh, GE was able to spin out the the healthcare business. And now it's looking ahead to the uh, later part of this year, beginning of next, when it will spin out the power segment and leave with GE. It will really just be GE Aerospace at that point. Um, it'll make uh, plane engines uh, and things along those lines. Um, to to go to what uh, um, to to Stephen Tusa, I mean, he, this was one of the greatest calls on a stock from an analyst I can remember. Um, in 2016, um, he downgraded it to sell. It was still trading at around, um, I think it was a split adjusted $190, and that was very close to the uh, the peak of the of the stock. Um, and as we all know, it was just a, a long ride down. It was just a um, uh, GE was just a mess. It had too much debt. It had uh, it was way too complicated. Another one of our reporters, um, or a market watch reporter, I remember Tommy Kilgore, at one of the earnings reports, he listed the I think it was something like five or seven different earnings metrics that GE had um, in, in one of its earnings report. It was just way too complicated. And and and, to, and Tusa saw this. He saw the problems there that nobody else was seeing. And I think it's uh, it must have been a, a pretty gutsy call. For him to, to, to do that. Um, I can imagine GE wasn't happy, but it, he turned out to be absolutely right. And today he actually, uh, the report came out uh, where coverage of that stock has been handed off to uh, other analysts at, at GE, which uh, seems like the right thing to do because it's no longer an industrial conglomerate. It's now breaking up into its component parts. And we're going to get to hear more about that um, at this investor day. And what I think people really wanted to hear, it's not, they're not worried about the GE aerospace segment. That's a very strong business. They're worried about the power segment, um, which has had a lot of tough times, particularly in renewable energy, where it's just losing money hand over fist. Um, and the goal there is to present a, a vision of how that part can get profitable and make investors feel comfortable for that spinoff later this year. So we'll be tuning in on Thursday, and I'm sure we'll be reporting about it. But it's Al Root will be on it. Al Root, for sure. But it's also interesting. There are so few analysts who are negative on stocks. And when you get somebody who's so right like this, yeah. hat tip. So I want to go to some listener questions which have been coming in. And I'm going to put the first one to Tom. Jeff notes, short-term rates are high, but probably won't stay that way forever. What is the most sensible way to construct a bond portfolio in this environment? 
think you want to have some balance between shorter duration bonds and longer duration bonds. You would call that a, a barbell strategy. Why do that? Well, first is to, to acknowledge the highest interest rates investors can earn are really in the front end of the curve. Again, market expecting the Fed to hike rates and then eventually have to cut them. But there is risk in that strategy, Lauren. You, if you're a long-term wealth aggregator, a 12-month T-bill, for instance, at five-ish percent sounds great. But what if you get the money back in a year's time and interest rates are not at 5% anymore? You would have to take that money and invest it at, say, 2%. That's reinvestment risk. So there is risk to holding bonds short-term. Um, that strategy, just to put some data behind it, historically in a recession, the Fed usually cuts about three percentage points. Um, so how can you balance that? Well, if you love 5% for a T-bill for 12 months, why don't you like 5% for, say, five years? And you can buy investment-grade bonds, which are very, very low default risk, or even a municipal bond that has a tax equivalent yield of 5, 5.5%. So you can lock in that longer you can lock in that 5% yield for a longer period of time. Um, I think that's the best strategy to balance humility of this cycle, but locking in a yield that for many of my clients is a traditional hurdle rate. Of they want their money to compound at about 5%. For the first time in 15 years, we can do it with less risk. Take advantage while you can. Enjoy it, for sure. We have a- right. 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 We have a question from Neil. He wants to know, is JP Morgan worried about the amount of debt that homeowners have taken on relative to their income and their income prospects in the event of a recession? Home buyers, excuse me. I think, homeowners. Um, the short answer is we don't, we're not concerned with leverage metrics in the housing market. Debt to disposable income in America is well below 2008 levels. And it's part of the reason why it's unlikely if we hit a recession in America, it, it will not look like 2008. Um, leverage at the consumer and the corporate level is substantially lower. And Dodd-Frank regulations have taken a lot of risk out of the banking sector. So a forced deleveraging cycle, like we saw in 2008, seems unlikely. Um, major banks, we'll call it your top five systemically important banks, have almost twice as much capital, months worth of liquidity, not, not just weeks. And Dodd-Frank has pushed a lot of the risky lending out of that market. So, look, I think you, you have a recipe for if, the Fed, if, if there is a recession, it look, will look more traditionally Fed-driven and not, not um, a financial crisis like we all have recency biased against. Right. Okay, another question comes from Mark. He wants to know, you spoke of a long period of time needed by the Fed to tame inflation. What does that translate into in days, months, or years? Probably not days. <laughs> no. Uh, we're expecting the Fed to get inflation at the end of this year down to a little below 3%, that's core inflation, and be on its way to 2% by the end of 2024. Um, inflation has persistence to it. It takes time. Um, 
again, to get down towards 3%, though, we do think you'll need to see layoffs um, to, to give the Fed confidence that they're, that they're on their way to 2%. All right. Lee has a question. You, he says he thinks you basically said that buying a 10-year Treasury bond would be a good investment. Do you think most of the return from that investment would be from capital appreciation or from the 4% interest? Um, depends on what horizon you're thinking about and when the timing of the recession happens. I think first and foremost, a 10-year Treasury bond here at 4% is attractive. Outright, hard stop. From there, you're going to be afforded a 4% risk-free coupon while you wait for interest rates to come down. I continue to believe rates will come down quickly in the event of a recession. So over a 12-month period, you could expect a total return of nearly 8% if rates come down 50 basis points. So um I really love the trade. I think it's a, a great opportunity to get yield and coupon with appreciation upside. So, um, you know, an emphatic exclamation point on Lee's question. All right. I'm going to pose one to Ben from Steve. Barron's has had many articles stating that the market has gone up too far too fast. I know we've had at least a few. Um, are you in that camp or are you in the camp of thinking the coast is clear and that stocks will continue their upward climb from January? Um, so as a trade, I think there's more upside. Um, I, it just, uh, this market has a, a feel of one that isn't ready to, to give it up yet. I, I think there are certain sectors of the market that have gone too far too fast. Um, and that, uh, as they go up or if they go up more, uh, they're probably worth selling a lot of the, uh, no, um, you know, the, the, the no profit, uh, growth companies, uh, would, would fall into that camp. Um, I do think you want to, be looking at companies that are going to be uh, more quality uh, oriented that are um, uh, cheap, at least on a relative basis. Um, but just because the market has gone too far and I don't uh, and I see pitfalls ahead doesn't mean that the market can't keep going uh, a bit. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if we do get some more upside 4300. I mean, I've seen some people say 4600. And I can see that happening as well. Um, I, I think uh, uh, even during some of the, the worst bear markets. So like um, if you look back at, um, you know, 2000 when the market peaked in, in, in March um, and stocks fell, it actually got very close to uh, uh, the high again before really falling off again into uh, 2001, 2002. So um, I, I think that, uh, yes, there, there's more upside here, but it doesn't mean that there, there isn't downside ahead. I thought you were going to answer both and you sort of did. I well, but it, it just depends on your time frame. Exactly. Uh, it, it's are you trading? Are you investing? So let's close with a look at the jobs numbers that are coming out on Friday. Listeners will remember that the economy added 517,000 non-farm jobs in January. That is far, far ahead of expectations. So far, in fact, that it suggested the Fed's tightening results weren't even working to cool the economy. Ben, what's the consensus estimate for February? The number uh, for uh, Friday. It's much closer to 200,000, 200,000, 207,500 uh, in February. And, and um, you know, that's that's a lot lower. But I think a lot of people look at that January number and uh, 
and, and think that there were some uh, some quirks that made it a lot higher than than anyone expected, including uh, some of the seasonal adjustments and and, and whatnot. Uh, weather was also mentioned. Um, unemployment rate is supposed to come in at 3.4 percent, and average hourly uh, wages uh, are supposed to grow uh, 0.4 percent month over month. Um, that would be up from uh, 0.3 percent. All right, we'll close with Tom. What is your expectation for the February number, and what do you think it will mean for the Fed? I agree with Ben's point. The January surge in employment deserves an asterisk, at least for right now. You're talking about historically pre-COVID only experiencing 500,000-plus jobs in a month, like less than two handfuls of time. So it, it's quite rare. Uh, I think we're going to trend back down towards 200,000, and you'll and that will continue the trend that we saw in the back half of 2022 so ben really agree with you i think the bigger zoom out is it's directionally consistent with what we we want to see um but for all listeners you, you really need to think about what's the the level of employment growth that's just consistent with the unemployment rate staying at the level again 3.4 percent the unemployment rate you need to really get back down to sub hundred thousand payroll growth to feel like the labor market is coming into balance. So directionally the right way, Ben, with you. Uh, still think there's more to go, though. More work ahead for the Fed and more work ahead for the markets. I want to thank you, Tom and Ben, both for joining me today. Great call. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Thanks, Live. Mark. Tomorrow on Barron's Live We'll have a version of Tech Trader, the outlook for technology stocks. Barron's associate editor for technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Daniel Ives, technology analyst at Wedbush Securities, on what's ahead in the tech sector. Thanks again, Tom and Ben. Thanks again to our listeners. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.